0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Three great words: free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with one dollar minimum purchase.
2: Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through twelve thirty one twenty four. Excludes tax. Must up rewards.
3: The Scythians built no infrastructure except for tombs and they believed in the afterlife so they placed lots of objects for the afterlife in those graves and so it's from the excavation of graves that we have a real direct insight into what the Scythians looked like.
4: That was Sincen Simpson describing the British Museum's new exhibition on the Scythians.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
4: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This autumn's headline exhibition at the British Museum in London is Scythians, Warriors of Ancient Siberia which explores the story of the nomadic people who dominated the steppe between the Black Sea and China in the first millennium BC. The exhibition is filled with incredible artefacts, many of which came to light through relatively recent archaeological discoveries. Our World History Editor Matt Elton paid a visit to the museum a little while back, where he met with exhibition curators Sinjin Simpson and Chloe Layton to discuss the world of the Scythians and some of the fascinating objects that are on show in the exhibition.
3: My name is John Simpson. I'm the British Museum curator for this BP exhibition, Scythians, Warriors of Ancient Siberia. The Scythians were an nomadic people, spoke Iranian languages, judging by the personal names recorded by other historians. They lived between the 9th century BC and the 2nd century BC, and seemed to have originated in southern Siberia. They developed horse riding and the soft saddle and very powerful forms of weapon like the Scythian bow. That combination of horsepower and archery gave them the edge, the cutting edge over the peoples around them. So they spread very rapidly westwards into the North Caucasus and the Northern Black Sea. In fact, in later periods, the Black Sea even got called the Scythian Sea. So it was in the Black Sea area that Herodotus, writing in the 5th century BC, encountered the Scythians, and he devoted a whole book of his equivalent of the history of the world to the Scythians. They're also described by Assyrian kings who fought them in the 670s BC. They're also described and illustrated by Achaemenid Persians in Iran.
5: So it sounds as if, is it true to say that we know more about them from the writings of other people than we do from them themselves.
3: Yes, the Scythians actually left no written records of their own, so we have to rely on their contemporaries and their enemies, if you like, for accounts about them. But the great thing about archaeology is that we have lots of objects that they left. Well, you might say, where would you find those objects? Well, The Scythians built no infrastructure except for tombs, and they believed in the afterlife. So they placed lots of objects for the afterlife in those graves. And so it's from the excavation of graves that we have a real direct insight into what the Scythians looked like. Literally, the body art, the earliest tattoos that we have from the ancient world, the clothing that's exceptionally preserved in frozen tomb conditions, the weapons, the food, the drink, and everything that they valued.
5: And how important is the landscape in which they lived and how well these things have been preserved?
3: Well, the best preserved evidence comes from a small region in Siberia in the Altai Mountains, where the winters get very harsh and uh, the ground freezes during winter. Of course, it defrosts in the summer, but the areas covered by the tombs never warms up sufficiently in summer for the ground ever to defrost. So those particular graves become trapped in ice. And so when excavated, have exceptional preservation, really amazing preservation of furs and
5: felts and even sheepskins. So should we look at some of the objects that you've got here in this new exhibition then? Um, what's this we stood by now?
3: So this is a gold belt buckle and it's arguably the most famous Scythian gold object to survive. It was found in Southern Siberia during the reign of Peter the Great in the early 18th century. It shows a dead man with his head caressed in the lap of a goddess who wears a real Scythian tall wig headdress. And you can see the top of it almost intertwining with the tree behind her. The dead man's quiver is hanging behind him. And there's a servant or friend holding by the reins two saddled horses. So this gold object, in a sense, captures the essence of Scythian art, the love of gold, the scaling up of personal adornments to show status, weaponry, and ritual.
5: And it's so well preserved, it's so beautiful.
3: Uh, it's a masterpiece. I mean, the Scythians really were master craftsmen at working gold.
5: That's something that interests me a lot, actually, is that we get a sense of them as warriors, but also as craftsmen, which I didn't necessarily expect these things to be so beautifully produced.
3: We, like Herodotus and the Assyrian and Persian commentators, are products of urban civilization. And therefore, deep down, all of us underestimate the power of nomads and their ability to produce beautiful things. I mean,
5: how central was the figure of the horse to this culture?
3: Horsepower was everything. It gave them mobility. It gave them speed. It gave them the ability to move herds over much larger distances than they could before. So that really gave the Scythians the ability to control the vast grasslands, the, the corridor of power, if you like, that connects northern China and the Black Sea.
5: Are there other objects that we can look at to get a sense of their culture more generally? Absolutely.
3: So uh, what we have here is uh, um, a unique moment. This is the first time that these gold objects have been shown side by side with the first Russian artists' response to them. So this is an 18th century drawing showing the object below at one-to-one scale. It's extraordinary because these objects have been in the collections of first the Kunstkamera and then the Hermitage since the 18th century, but they've never been shown together until now.
5: You mentioned the hermitage there. What What is that when we say the hermitage?
3: So the State Hermitage Museum is the great flagship of Russian culture in a sense. It is our major lender to this exhibition. So we have over 200 objects here in London. It's a really, it's a unique opportunity to come and see these treasures.
5: So what we've got here is something quite different. What are we looking at here?
3: So... In these cases, we've got examples of perfectly preserved men and women's clothing. And it's preserved, as I said, because of the frozen tomb conditions that they were found in. This shoe is really extraordinary. It's the most exceptional piece of footwear that we have from antiquity. And you can see it's decorated all over, not just on the uppers, but even on the sole, which is embroidered with pyrites and crystals. So in a sense, this is a Illustration of what happens when you live in a society without fixed furniture. Imagine yourself sitting cross legged on the ground on your felt rug or woolen rug, and everyone can see that the soles of the shoes are as decorated as the rest of your costume.
5: So the soles are decorated because they would be on display?
3: Absolutely, yes. In in a sense, unlike some modern societies where showing the sole of your foot is a sign of disrespect, I think it's quite the opposite here.
5: So what we've got here is some kind of headdress, is that right?
3: Yes, it's a headdress worn by a chieftain. Uh, It shows signs of damage in antiquity. Uh, His head has the telltale signs of unmistakable violence. He was killed probably from behind with a pointed battle axe. And there's traces of damage even on this headdress that he wore. So it's carved from wood and leather. It's a three-dimensional headdress. It's an extraordinary thing.
5: Do we know how other cultures regarded the Scythians when they met them in battle?
3: Well, Herodotus describes a failed campaign by the Persian king Darius, uh, who basically went looking for them in the northern Black Sea in order to beat them up. But according to Herodotus, he didn't really manage to find them at all because the Scythians sent their women and children deeper into the steppe on wagons along with their herds and basically ran rings around them with their horses.
5: We've talked about horses. I mean, how important was wine to the Scythians? Well, everyone likes to eat and most
3: people like to drink. And in the case of the Black Sea area, what the Scythians liked to drink was imported Greek wine. And so we have evidence of amphorae buried in large numbers in the high-status tombs, even Athenian drinking cups of pottery and silver. So we've got some quite graphic evidence here of, of some of the things that they ate and drank. They ate meaty stews, and judging by the finds in tombs, they valued the fat-tailed sheep, and particularly this segment of the bottom of the vertebra. So this section of backbone was placed as a meaty offering uh, on a table, sometimes even with the knife used to um, serve it. Um, So fat-tailed sheep um, were highly valued. Mutton, therefore, was widely consumed, probably along with horse meat and other types of meat. There are metal cauldrons found in some tombs. In this particular exhibition we're really fortunate as well in being able to exhibit some lumps of cheese I mean they're past their best by date but still it's quite remarkable to see lumps of cheese in an exhibition that's basically archaeological.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings
5: Do we have any objects in this exhibition that show how they lived in the land and the land around them?
6: We do, yes. So what is now beside me is actually a sheepskin rug. This looks like it's been shaved off a sheep just yesterday, but actually it is over 2,000 years old. And why I think this is important to show is because usually they're discarded in antiquity or even when archaeologists are opening up the tomb and things like this are found – in rare instances where preservation is amazing, just like Pazarek in the high Altaï mountains.
5: Um, Are there any objects here that you are particularly keen on or are favourites of yours, I suppose?
6: This object was actually found on a horse in one of the burial tombs at Pazarek. And it is a horse headgear. And it was put on the horse, especially for the burial. And the horse was slaughtered for the burial because the Scythians believed in an afterlife and they took all their earthly possessions, the horse being at the center of their life. So that is why it was important to be buried with their horse as well. So this headdress would have been put on the horse. And as you can see, it depicts a ram's head and on top of that, an eagle or some kind of bird. And it would have been to transform the horse into some mythical beast, which would then transport the dead into the afterlife, and stay with them as this fantastic beast there.
5: It's amazing. What's it made of, did you say?
6: It's made of leather and felt. So again, this is another example of the amazing preservation that we have yielded from the Pazyryk tombs. How how
5: central were animals to the mythology of these people?
6: So what we can take from their religion and mythology is only through the objects that we have found. And they do have a very strong visual language, which is called... Scythian animal style art, and it does depict many mythical beasts with combined features of herbivores, so deers, horses, elks, and also birds.
5: We've also got, talking about animals, what seems to be a swan just behind you.
6: Yes, this is a swan. Swans did migrate to Siberia. And again, this is another example of amazing preservation. It looks like it was made just yesterday. And it is very modern and stylistic in style, I think. And this would have been put on top of a pole of a wagon, and this would have been for decoration. So the wings would have been flapping in the wind while they were riding across the Siberian plains.
5: Of course, the other aspect of their lifestyle was the fact they were warriors. Um, We've got here a shield, is that right?
6: Yep, this is a shield, and it still has some of the colouring on it, so the red pigmentation. These shields are made of wooden sticks, and although you think that maybe this won't protect you from an oncoming sword or bow and arrow their design is actually quite clever the arrow would get caught in between the sticks and make it easy for a scythian to just break off the shaft and then let the arrowhead fall so actually they were quite useful in that sense and they did protect you and they're made small because a scythian was usually on horseback so these would have had to have been unobtrusive. So
5: can we chart changes or developments in their civilization across the vast time period in
6: which they lived? They were constantly developing their horse equipment to make it better and easier for them to ride and over time they became skilled horsemen. This really revolutionized warfare because the cavalry became the driving force behind the Scythians' military might and it meant that they had a step up on their sedentary neighbours because they were the first people to be able to charge at their enemies at speeds of 30 to 40 miles per hour. And one example of how they revolutionised horse riding was actually the fact that they invented the first saddle, which spread like wildfire throughout their sedentary neighbours to the south and has also lasted the test of time. So we still have similar looking things today.
5: I had no idea they'd invented this. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so this dates from the 7th century BC, is that right?
6: Yeah, the saddles dates from the 7th century BC, which was when the Scythians started to really dominate the whole Eurasian steppe.
5: So this is very different.
6: So these were found in, again, another Pazyryk grave, and they are actually nail clippings of the deceased. And there's this famous quote, by Herodotus that says that the Scythians don't wash with water that actually have sauna baths vapor vapor tents but actually the Scythians did look after themselves and did groom because in the burial these were put next to the deceased for grooming reasons but also there's this underlying thing that archaeologists think that The Scythians didn't want anybody else to have their DNA. So it was really important that any personal belongings and anything personal to them, like the hair, nail clippings, should be kept with the body.
5: How vast an area did these people cover?
6: So the Achaemenid Persian Empire is said to be the biggest empire during that time. But actually, the Scythians controlled a stretch of land that originated in southern Siberia, and then they moved all the way to the Black Sea region and also eastward to the northern edge of China. And this stretch of land actually doubled the Persian Empire's length. So they controlled a, a really vast strip of land and also was very connected.
5: What's been the thing that surprised you the most working on this exhibition?
6: They were not uncivilised. They were a very, They had a very rich culture and they were incredibly skilled craftsmen. And many people think that these people weren't like that, but they they were. And I think when you come into this exhibition space and you're put into the context of their story through their eyes, you actually see that these people had a complex society.
5: So we're now in a section of the exhibition talking about a slightly different people. Is that right?
6: Yeah, that's right. So we're now talking about another nomadic civilization that we don't actually know that much about. Um, It is an old discovery. However, we're only just now finding out things about these people. So we know they were called the Tashtik culture and they were found in a region called Oglati, at a site called Oglati.
5: Whereabouts is that?
6: It's close to the Chinese border in the Altai region. And these are the faces of the Scythian successors. They're wearing these clay masks because these cultures wanted to preserve their dead. They wanted to live forever. And this culture have put clay masks over the faces of the dead and have painted them to represent what they look like. And there's these fantastic designs all over the face. And we think that these represent the actual tattoos of the people under the mask. The Scythians were covered in tattoos. However, they didn't put them on their face. So again, this is some difference and similarities in these nomadic cultures. They both have tattoos, but this culture had them on their faces and the Scythians didn't. And what's great about the man found at this burial is that one of the curators from the State Hermitage Museum came over with a USB stick and said, I've got some CT scans of this man but I can't open it so scientists at the British Museum managed to unlock this file and on it was an amazing CT scan of the face of the man under the mask and we can't take the mask off because it's too it's glued to the face but it has revealed that the man has been trepanned so he has had a hole cut into the side of his head and the brain matter taken out The Scythians were doing this too, to preserve the dead. So they would stuff the head then with dry matter, like straw. But also, you can see a nasty scar running down the side of his face, which has been stitched up from probably sinew thread. And there's no obvious reason as to what this is for, except mutilation to make this man in his life look fearsome.
5: So he seemed more scary as a warrior, is that right? Yeah,
6: exactly. So he seemed more scary as a warrior.
5: That's extraordinary. So um, we know that the tattoos were different between these two people because they weren't on their faces. Do we know anything about what they represented in either case or what they were made from?
6: Yeah. So for the Scythians, we know that they probably represented stages in their life because we know they would have sleeves up their arm and down their leg. And they weren't done in one go, they were done over time. So, to create a story, and we think that possibly it was a story of that Scythian's life.
4: That was Chloe Layton and St. John Simpson talking to Matt Elton. Scythians, Warriors of Ancient Siberia is running at the British Museum until the 14th of January 2018. And please note that there is an entry charge those who aren't members or under 16. You can find out more details at britishmuseum.org where you can also see many of the objects that were discussed here. Another place to find out more about the Scythians is issue 6 of BBC World Histories which contains a piece by St. John Simpson who you heard from before highlighting some of the most interesting artefacts that the people produced. You can get hold of BBC World Histories at all good newsagents or directly from us in the History Special Editions section of buysubscriptions.com. And now it's time for this week's History News with our Acting Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans.
1: The remains of a transatlantic passenger liner which was sunk during the Second World War may have been located on the Atlantic seabed. The Athenia was the first British ship to be sunk during the conflict, torpedoed by a German submarine hours after British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain announced the country was at war with Germany. The attack on the liner, which was bound for Montreal, Canada, occurred about 200 nautical miles off the northwest coast of Ireland and killed 117 people. Shipwreck hunter David Mearns believes that sonar data shows the Athenia to be lying 200 metres down on the seabed off Ireland and told the BBC that the dimensions of the target match exactly what would be expected of a 160-metre-long, 13,500-tonne passenger liner. While Mearns writes in his book The Shipwreck Hunter that in absence of a photograph he can't be absolutely sure, he states, quote, I can say in my expert opinion there's a very, very high probability that that's the Athenia. Everything fits. Mearns first encountered the search for the remains following a commission from the BBC to explore the possibility of a live broadcast from a wreck site. The idea has since been dropped, though Mearns expressed hope that there may be an expedition to the site in the future. Meanwhile, a team of archaeologists surveying the site of an Iron Age brock in the Scottish Highlands believe they may have uncovered evidence of a medieval Norse Parliament meeting place. The stone-built roundhouse, near the town of Thirso on the north coast of mainland Scotland, has been uncovered as part of the Caithness Broch project. While the name of the broch, Thing is thought to come from the Norse word ting, meaning Parliament, the team also explained it contains quote, "...faint features that may indicate activity associated with Parliament meetings." The next step will be to uncover what lies beneath the ground at Bar, with small-scale excavations taking place later this month in which the public can take part.
4: Now before we go, here's a reminder that our History Weekend at Winchester begins tomorrow, Friday the 6th of October. If you've not had a chance to purchase tickets, but would still like to attend, then please do come along, as you will be able to buy tickets for those talks that haven't sold out from us at the event. Find out more details of this and our weekend in York next month at historyweekend.com. OK, well, that's about all for today, but please do listen in on Monday when we'll be talking about the Munich Conference with Robert Harris.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions.